If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so that it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Hooper's Unhailed, a Capital Flavor production in partnership with 265 Media. What up, what it is, what's poppin', it's your boy K-Dot, and I have a very special episode of Hooper's Unhailed coming your way. I am in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to talk to legendary Hooper, now coach, Sylvia Crawley. Coach Crawley, a national champion at her alma mater, North Carolina, gives us part one of her journey, starting in Steubenville, Ohio, then takes us on a journey of how she got recruited to UNC and her path to being a national champion. She then details her start in playing overseas with some great stories in her time in France, Spain, and Korea. So stay locked in. Hooper's Unhailed with Coach Sylvia Crowley is coming up next. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Hooper's Unhailed. I am your host, Kevin, better known in this media world as KDOT. And once again, I have a very, very special guest with me. I have none other than Coach Sylvia Crawley with me. Coach, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm good. How are you? Doing very well. Um, once again, I want to thank you. Um, for you know coming on and telling us your story you have such an amazing story and I just want to let you know the listeners know how amazing you are um, I mean when we talk about your history you know as being not only you know one of one of the you know most renowned uh, basketball players out here we're talking about legendary status we're talking about dunking blindfolded legendary you know so that's amazing um and not only blindfolding dunking we are talking about even after basketball and what you're doing now in coaching we're talking about just um if i'm not mistaken is it was it 16 different countries that you played yeah, in 16 different countries 16 different countries <laughs> you know i mean this is legendary status you know so um i really really appreciate you coming on and you know sharing um some of that with us so 
uh, I, I want to just get right into it. And I kind of want to start off, you know, from the beginning. And this is what I call humble beginnings. So let's kind of take a trip down memory lane and talk about when was your first, uh, when was the first time you realized you were in love with this game called basketball? <laughs> I feel like this is like love and hip hop. I fell in love with hip hop when, <laughs> um, first of all, I just want to thank you for having me on this show. Um, with it being um, Women's History Month, it means a lot to me, um, and particularly when guys um, really salute women. Um, I feel like you and some of the other guys that you do um, rooms with on Clubhouse and different podcasts with Daniel and Zachary and all those guys, like really pay attention to women's basketball. You appreciate the sport. And so, um, you know, we dedicated our lives to this sport, um, just like the men. And so it's always refreshing to find a guy that is really a true supporter. So I want to thank you for that. But absolutely to answer your question when did I fall in love with basketball um so believe it or not when I played you couldn't even start to play basketball until the seventh grade however (laughs) however I was like um six feet in the sixth grade right so I was the size of high schoolers and people would ask me if I played for the high school I'm like no I'm I'm in, I'm in middle school <laughs> and I was a true kid. Like I still had pigtails and a bang and I was playing with baby dolls and, you know, but people thought I was older than what I was. And so I couldn't wait until the seventh grade to like, you know, pick up a ball for the very first time in my life and actually try out for a team. Cause I just was tired of everybody asking me if I played for the high school. So, um, right. seventh grade, Never had ever touched a basketball before. Now, I watched a lot of basketball with my pops. I'm a daddy's girl. My dad played basketball at my um, high, my former high school. Um, so, you know, he really wanted my brother to play. My brother just kind of went in the opposite direction. I, I think my brother didn't really want to walk in his shoes. Um, so I felt like I'm going to be the one, daddy. Like, I'm going to be the I'm going to be the baller for you. And so, um, so seventh grade picked up a ball. Um, I was terrible. I didn't jump, even though I was taller. Well, because I was taller than the other kids, I never jumped. I felt like, why do I have to jump? Like I can get a rebound without jumping with with these little girls, you know? <laughs> it's like I was a grown woman playing with girls. And so, um, my I remember my very first game. Um, my whole family showed up. Now I'm the youngest of three. But there's 10 years mm-hmm. between me and my sister and eight years difference between my brother and I. So they're like grown, you know, like when I'm in a, when I'm 12 years old, they're 22 and 20 years old. Right. So they're in college. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're in college. They're they're doing grown folks stuff. But when I had a game, everybody came to the game together. Right. Um, especially if they right. were home from school and they only went to school about two and a half hours away from home. So they could get home for special occasions and stuff like that. But my whole family showed up for little old me. And I told you, I'm a daddy's girl. My dad growing up was an alcoholic. I love my dad. Like I changed my dad's life. I wouldn't go to bed unless my dad tucked me in at night. So my dad had to stop running the streets, 
come in, you know, before the street light, blink pink, tuck me in, put some candy under my pillow, kiss me goodnight. You know what I mean? Like, I refused to go to bed until my dad came home. So my mom was like, you got to get home. This girl won't go to bed. So, you know, that's that's my relationship with my dad. But when he drank, I didn't like, I won't say I didn't like him, but I, I didn't like when he drank because he was a different person. Right. He wasn't as fun. He wasn't as nice, right? But when I played basketball, my first game, everybody showed up and my dad was sober because my mom refused to let him embarrass me at the school, right? And I Mm -hmm. remember looking out in the stands, I took a mental snapshot of that family portrait. And I wanted to play basketball all the time so I could continue to see that, what what I looked out in the stands and saw. So... I fell in love with not necessarily basketball first, but I felt I fell in love with what basketball does, how it brings people and okay. families together. It's very similar to if you're in a relationship with a person, it's possible for you to love the way that person loves you more so than you are in love with that person, if that makes sense. Like there, there are women that feel like, oh, I love the way he loves me. He treats me like a princess. Blah, blah, blah. But it's like, but do you love him? Like, do you love, or you just like the way he treats you or he likes, you like what he does for you, but do you really, really love him? So that's how my relationship with basketball started. It wasn't until later in my career where um, I really, really fell in love with the sport, but it, it started with loving what the sport could do for me and how it brought people in my family together. Okay. First off. You, we're not even five or six minutes into the conversation and you're already dropping gems. <laughs> so I love it. Second, sidebar, you and I share the same birthday. Wow. <laughs> birthday twins. So, yes, we are birthday twins. So shout out to you, Libras. my birthday twin. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're going to, um, you know, just continue the conversation and, and let's talk about, you know, your, your time in, in high school and really um, this might be a little loaded, but your time in high school and going into the recruiting process, because I know you have a huge story, but I do want to respect your time. So let's go, let's go into kind of like, you know, high school and, you know, the whole recruiting process and, you know, what, um, what was your thought process behind, um, you know, you being this, you know, amazing basketball player and, you know, with all of, with, with some of these schools, you know, paying attention to that and wanting you to join their school? Well, let me, let me start answering that question by saying in middle school, my parents sat me down and had a very, very mm-hmm. real conversation. Like they raised me in a very, real way where they just kind of told me reality. They didn't hide things from me. Like everything was right there in our faces as kids in my home. And so they basically sat me down as a middle schooler and was like, look, you're going to need a plan for college because we put your, we're putting your brother and your sister through school and we don't have not one red cent saved for you. So you need to figure out how you're going to get to college. And like, I'm a kid. I'm a 12 year old kid that they're at. I'm like, where am I going to find 
money for college. I don't even know if I want to go to college. Like, this is my first conversation with my parents. They're like, oh, no, you're going to college. That's not a debate. But you just got to figure out a plan of how you're going to get there. And so this is before I was even introduced to sports. Prior to that, I was doing dance in school and piano and karate and all that kind of stuff. So when I started getting into basketball, when I got to high school, my whole team. Now, by this time, I'm six foot two. So my whole team was going to camp at Ohio State. I'm from Steubenville, Ohio. Like people, you're born there, you die there, you, you know, you you rarely go on vacation, maybe to the lake down the road, but that's it, you know. And so, um, right. so my school, my t- my high school team was going to camp at Ohio State. That was like the big camp in our area, right? And it's about two and a mm-hmm. half hours from where I grew up at. And so I came home and I said, I had a brochure. I was like, Mom, the team is going to camp this summer. Like, can I go to camp? And she was like, How much does it cost? I think it was like $175 at the time. She was like, what? We don't have $175 for you to go to camp. And then you figure out you don't want to do basketball no more. You want to do something else. I'm like, no, I'm going to stick with it, please. Like, everybody's going. And and that never worked in my house. Like, everybody else is doing it. If you said that, you were probably going to get a no, right? But um, my mom was like, okay, if this is what you really want. So we ha- I had to raise the money to go to camp. Everybody else's parents just gave them the money, right? I'm selling candy bars at the church. I'm doing car washes, like, on my own. <laughs> this is not like an organization scheduling this or setting this up. This is just me outside washing some cars and selling candy bars and anything else I can get my hands on. I sold it. So... We raised the money. My mom was a hairdresser, so she did some hair, a couple jerry curls, you know, <laughs> sewed some <laughs> clothes for some people, some prom dresses, whatever. So we get the money. I go to camp. At this camp, when I tell you K-Dot, this was the best thing that ever happened to me. In my mind, the worst thing, but in reality, the best thing. So at this camp, there are girls that are my height and taller. They're quicker than me, stronger than me. I couldn't get a rebound. I couldn't score a bucket. Right. And my coaches used to tell me, like, still bend your knees when you play defense. I didn't think that was cool. And it hurt my knees to Mm. bend them. So and I was like my growth plates were still open. So I was growing. I had a lot of growing pain. So I wasn't about to bend my knees on defense. Like it just looked silly to me. But at this camp, listen, these girls were smacking the ground, chopping their feet, moving defensive slides. And I looked around like. I better get with the program. So now everything my coaches have been telling me, I got to apply it at this camp because I can't even score. Like I can't, I can't do That's anything my way. Best thing ever happened to me. So they picked the all-star team. Um, I didn't make the all-star team. Um, so the next day was the all-star game. Somebody got injured, sprained their ankle. I was, a, um, they came and got me like kind of as an alternate and I replaced that person. So I got to play in the all-star game by accident, right? By default. <laughs> and so, okay. um, you know, I didn't do anything major in the all-star game, but I played in the all-star. Like, that was an accomplishment. Like, you played in an all-star game. So my parents were just bragging about how I went to this camp, made the all-star team. So maybe a little less than a week later, I get a letter from Ohio State. And it's saying, it's from the staff. They're saying, thank you for coming to the Ohio State basketball camp. 
we think you have potential to play collegially someday. We'd like to keep in touch. They sent a questionnaire for me to fill out. And now the thought that I could possibly play collegially has entered my brain. And I'm like, that's it. I'm going to get a basketball scholarship. That's my plan. So I call a meeting with my parents like, okay, I got my plan. Like these people think I could play at college someday. So I want to get a basketball scholarship and I want to play, you know, collegially. So they were like, well, go talk to your coach. When you get to school, talk to your coach, ask him what you need to do in order to get a scholarship. (laughs) Like they know nothing about the process. So I go to school the next day. They just they just start college. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they just they just start college and like go do what right. you gotta do, you know. <laughs> so I go talk to my cousin. My cousin is like, "You want to do what?" Like, meanwhile, I'm so raw, K dot. Like, I'm so raw. So they're like, "Okay." Like, this was like a dream come true for them to hear me say those words. This wasn't something they were pushing on me. This is something that I said I wanted. So they're like, "Okay." Like, we're going to hold you accountable to that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what does that mean? (laughs) So they had me come in early before practice. They had to change my shot. My shot was so janky. Like, my feet weren't square to the basket. My feet used to point over to the side. I would turn side. I had a Bill Cartwright shot. If you know Bill Cartwright, that was my shot, yes. But it went in. It would go in that way. So anyways, they changed my shot. They worked on my ball handling because I wouldn't bend. So I just was dribbling high. And you could just rip the ball at mm-hmm. will from me. So they got me dribbling low and all this kind of stuff. And um, and I was very agile from, like, dancing school. I, did, I took tap, ballet, jazz from, like, age 2 to 12. So I was very flexible, very limber, very agile for a center, right? So right, right. they started working on my ball handling skills, different moves, drop steps to the basket, hook shot. And um, I continued to go to camps. I started playing AAU the next summer. Um, by my junior year, I was being recruited by over 250 schools. I was six foot four, still very long and lanky. Um, but you could tell I had tons of potential, even though I was still very raw. So by my senior year, I was averaging 19 rebounds, 18 points, 10 blocks, triple-double. And um, the schools that were heavily – well, I made a public announcement that I was not going to school in-state. I felt like – yeah, my parents were so upset with me. I said it in the newspaper. But I felt like, okay, I'm from Steubenville, Ohio, and I used to always look at magazines and, te- and TV just to see, like, is there anybody else that's six foot in the sixth grade like me? And I never saw myself in magazines, which is why I eventually started my own magazine. I never saw anybody that looked like me on TV. So I made a decision. I want to go far away. Like, I just want to explore a different part of the country with different culture, different customs, different accent. And so I knew I wanted to go far. And my plan was I ain't never coming back here. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so um, Texas A&M was one of the schools only because I had a great relationship with the assistant coach. His name was Coach Luby. Um, my mm-hmm. mom felt like, okay, if you're going far, you're going to need a family away from home. So Iowa was one of the schools. Vivian Stringer was the head coach there. She wanted, my mom wanted me to have a strong 
black woman mother figure like my mom was. And so mm-hmm. um, Minnesota was one of my top five schools because Coach Fields was there and she was um, an African-American coach. There were only a few at the time and, th- and two of those were recruiting me. Um, let's see, Tennessee and Northern Kentucky was like ranked that year. They were doing really good. So they, um, Kentucky's close to Ohio. So they, they were recruiting me. So those in North Carolina, those were my five schools. So I'm going through the process, filling out questionnaires. They're sending me letters. My parents literally had to get another mailbox just for me. Like that's how many letters were coming to the house. Um, so that's amazing. Yeah. So I go on my visits. Now here's the things like my parents and I, and my coaches, we sat down and we said, okay, when you're going on these visits, let's, let's write down a list of things that are important to you. Right. So I put about three things like, okay, like I graduated, I went to school when I was four. So I graduated when I was 17. So I was young. Oh, me too. Oh my Right. So my visits, on my visits, I'm 16. Okay. So I'm 15, 16 years old being recruited. So the things that were on my list were, can I wear my jersey number? Because I wore my dad's number, right? And that was Mm -hmm. a deal breaker for me. If I can't wear my dad's jersey number, I'm not coming to your school. I want to know what kind of shoes y'all y'all wear, right? Like just (laughs) a lot of materialistic (laughs) kind of superficial stuff. My parents wanted to know stuff like, okay, do you have tutors for every subject for her? Because I didn't have the highest kind of, I didn't have like a academically strong high school that I was coming out of. And so we were like, what if I get there and I can't do the work, you know? So my mom wanted to know, will there be tutors to help her? And, um, you know, do you have her major? I wanted to major at the time in electrical engineering, I thought. Um, or computer science and some schools had that some schools didn't you know and my sister and my brother were in school so they were like don't exile the school based on your major because she don't really really know what she wants to do she just thinks she and my sister was an electrical en- engineer that's the only major I knew so I was like <laughs> I don't want to be an electrical engineer <laughs> so um, and then my coaches wanted to know stuff like how many other centers are you recruiting how many do you currently have on a team? Like there was no internet where you could just pull up the roster and do your own research. Whatever right. the coaches told you on the phone, you had to believe it until you went on a visit and you saw it. Right. Exactly. So my coaches want to know, okay, well, how many other centers you got on the team? How many you're recruiting? Where does she fit on your list? You know, like, is she, is she, are you recruiting her to be a valuable piece to your team or you just kind of need some subs on the bench to, to add depth or what, you know, so he had basketball related questions, right? And do you play freshman right away or does she have to work her way up seniority? To, you know, do you play your seniors first? Like, how does that work at your school? Got our list. I start going on my visits. So I go to Iowa. Somebody told me, okay, listen, when you go to on a visit, Make sure it's in a city of a place where you would want to live someday because a lot of athletes make a name for themselves at their school. And then a lot, of, a lot of times they live right there in the area where they go to school because they build a name for themselves. So it's easy to find work. It's easy to start your own business, you know, and build off of, of the name that you built for, you know, the last four years. 
So they said, if that's not a place where you would want to live in case that coach ever leaves there, like this has to be a school that you love apart from the coach in a city that you like. So on my way to Iowa, I looked out the window. I saw cornfields for miles and miles. And although I love Vivian Stringer and how tough she was and it was a family atmosphere, um, I was like, nah, I can't. <laughs> if she ever leave here, I will be sick. And sure enough, two years later, Vivian left. So I was like, woo, good thing I didn't go there. Um, anyways, um, oh, and the, the third thing for me on the list, like from, from my 17-year-old mind, I was looking for a family away from home because I come from a very close-knit family. So that was on the list as well. I go to Tennessee State. My uncle is a head coach of football at Tennessee State at the time. So Tennessee State didn't have me stay with the host on the team. I stayed with my uncle. My uncle throws the car keys at me. He throws the house keys at me. He's like, this is your, your car, your garage, your key to the house. You come to school here. This is where you live. I'm like, hey, I got my own ride. <laughs> and so. Let's do it. <laughs> it's, uh, let's, let's get it. Listen, let's get I it. Go, I got my own ride. Yeah, I go there and we straight kick it the whole weekend my parents okay at this time the school's gonna pay for your parents to come on a visit unless you drove in a car and then they can reimburse them for mileage but they couldn't fly okay, parents gotcha. right so i'm at tennessee state i'm 16 without my parents you know and their whole motto was get her drunk and get her laid and i'm like what <laughs> so we're partying at tennessee state we go party at University, we go party at Vanderbilt. It's like those three schools right in a like small radius. So we just party hopping from school to school. It when I tell you it was off the chain, just black college experience, you know. Um, football game off the chain, the band, everybody was dancing. This was like another world for me, right? So at the end right. of the visit, usually the head coach would have a closing meeting where she put the squeeze on you. Uh uh-uh. uh, they sent me to Uncle Joe's house. Uncle Joe put the squeeze. He's a football head coach, so he's the he's notorious for putting a squeeze on people. So he's Ooh, like, okay. okay, Phil, did you have fun? I said, yeah, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> he said, um, you know, did you feel the family atmosphere that I've been telling you about for years? I said, yeah, I felt it, Unc. He said, well, you ready to commit? Because everybody's plan. Okay, North Carolina was my fourth visit. And everybody's mm-hmm. plan was to get me, get the visit before North Carolina and get me to commit before I even go there, right? That was everybody's game plan. Okay. So my uncle was like, you ready to commit? I'm like, um, I got to be honest. I, I don't, I don't want to go to school here. And he was like, why? I said, because I have a, I want to go pro. I want to be an Olympian. And this coach said that nobody has ever done that from this school. She couldn't name not one person. He was like, well, listen, listen, listen. If you and some of the other top athletes would come to an HBCU, we would have the funding that we need. We would have pro players. We would have Olympians. We have all the stuff that those other schools have. But somebody's got to take a stand and come to the school. And I said, I feel you. I really do. But I don't want to be the pioneer for that. Like, I would be the person that would open up the door for that to happen. I want to be the recipient of that. 
Uh, and gotcha. so yeah. that was like that was like my toughest visit because I really enjoyed the black college experience. And I really felt like I really felt what he was saying. If all the top black athletes went to black colleges, we, that's where the funding would go. Right. We would be making those schools millions of dollars versus predominantly white schools. So I understood what he was saying. I wanted to be a part of that movement. But me as one person by myself, I'm <laughs> like, I felt like we need to like have about 10 of us having this conversation and we all go together for this to really actually work. So he understood what I was where I was coming from in terms of like, he knew I'm from Steubenville. Like this is my uncle. He's from there too. He played in the NFL. Like he he got a chance to go pro. He knew and he inspired me to be a professional player. Like I, I have two uncles and a cut. So his my uncle Joe's son is Joe Gillum, who was the quarterback for the Steelers when they won two championships in the 80s. First, one of the first black quarterbacks okay. to win a championship. Not first black quarterback ever, but one of the first to win championships. And so he understood that path. He understood how I was inspired to get there because he was a part of that for me and didn't want to stand in my way. He understood my side. I understood his side. I walked away from Tennessee State. Felt like trash the whole way home on the flight. But I felt like this is what I got to do for, you know, myself, my family, whatever. So, um, so then North Carolina, I think I went to um, Northern Kentucky next. Um, that visit, um, I didn't feel the family atmosphere. It was, um, you know, the team was, the, it was half black, half white kind of team. My, my host mm-hmm. was white. Then there were, um, and the same thing happened at Minnesota. My host was white, but we went to like a tailgate football game and then we went to a party. And now I'm with the black girls going to the party, the white girls going to the bar. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. What time are we going to get in at night tonight? And they're like, well, it might be two, three in the morning. And I'm like, but I'm staying with her. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she might be in her bed. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm 16, right? So I don't even know how this play out. But I felt uncomfortable right, right. and I felt like this ain't a real family because the white girls is going here and the black girls is going over there. Like, how come we can't all go together? And they're like, mm-hmm. they don't want to go where we going. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so that was kind of the whole deal. And every time I came home from a visit, my parents were like, well, how did it go? At Tennessee State, I was still probably hung over. So I just went straight to my bedroom, was praying I was walking in a straight line, right? <laughs> Um, Northern right, Kentucky, right. they're like, okay, get your list out. Did they have this? Did they have that? Did they have your major? Did you go to a classroom setting? You know, how big was the class? So, you know, I had these discussions with my parents as I came back from the visits, just to take the emotions out of it. Because, you know, every visit, they're going to take you to their campuses, like most hype event. Like if that's a basketball game, right. a football game, and they're going to show you like the, this is like their school on the best day of the year, right? It might not be like that any other time of the year, but you they bring you in on that weekend and you just get caught up in emotions and stuff like that. So I go to North Carolina next. And when I get there, oh my goodness, I feel the family atmosphere immediately. My parents went with me. We drove eight hours from Ohio for this visit because we, they felt like, uh, I think she's leaning towards North Carolina and in case she wants to make a commitment, 
we want to be there with her. And that was our pack. Before I started any, any of my official visits, my parents and my coaches were like, all right, do not commit on the spot at the school. They're going to put an enormous amount of pressure on you on that last day. But tell them that we got to come back home and discuss it. And then we will call them that week and make a decision if it comes down to that. But don't let them force you into making a decision on the spot. Right. And I kept, I kept, I kept my word on that. But North Carolina, they were like, they felt like I was leaning towards there. They wanted to go with me just in case I wanted to make my decision. So we go. We feel the Southern hospitality immediately. Like people are like, hey, how you doing? Strangers. And they're waiting on an answer. Like in Ohio, if I don't know you and you don't know me, we walk down the street. We may or may not speak. If we do, we say, hey, how you doing? That's the whole greeting. Hey, how you doing? That doesn't, that's not a question. That's a statement. Hey, how you doing? And you keep going. You don't wait on the answer because you don't really care about the answer. Like, you're doing your thing, they're doing their thing. Just keep it moving. <laughs> but right. this was different. Like, they were waiting, they were looking in my eye and waiting on an answer. And, you know, we were like, oh, we're fine. We just drove up from Ohio. Like, they conversated with us. We got lost trying to get there. Somebody went out of their way and showed us how to get there. Like, follow me. I was going this way, but I'll take you this way. And we followed them. We got out the car, shook their hand. It was like a whole different atmosphere. And it was that family atmosphere that I was looking for before I even met the team. It was just a community. So when I get there, you know, they're going to ask you, what do you like to do? You like to bowl? You like to skate? And I'm like, I like to dance. <laughs> so we go straight to the party, right? And uh-huh. so I'm with the women's basketball group in the corner, right? And I got my my full-length leather trench coat because I'm thinking this is what they wear in college. I have no idea, right? So um, we're in the basement of a dorm. That's where this party was. And somebody tapped me on my shoulder and was like, would you like to dance? And I look up. And it's George Lynch. <laughs> I'm like, oh wow. I'm like, what who? Me? He's like, yeah. And he's like taller than me. So I'm asking the um, women's basketball players, I'm like, can you hold my coat? And they're like, ooh, they hyping me up. So I'll go to the <laughs> go to the floor, <laughs> dance with George Lynch. Song is over. I go back to the group. Somebody else tap on my shoulder. It's Rick Fox. Would you would you like to dance? I'm like, okay. what? <laughs> Okay. Okay. All right. That that lets me know. Please. Was that when you knew? Oh, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> I'm coming. I'm coming to North Carolina. <laughs> Look, mind you, I'm six. Like I'm six four and a half. Right. No, I'm mm-hmm. taller than the girls, the boys, the teachers, and my whole town. To the point where my mom was like calling my brother to come home from college to take me to the prom because she was like I don't think there's any boys tall enough to take her to the prom where she could wear heels so we're going to need you to come home and take your sister to the prom I'm like no I'm not going to the prom with my brother (laughs) so that's the kind of like atmosphere I was coming from so to go to college where it's like tall boys and they want to dance with me and I'm like me like the whole team is tall so why are they choosing me? I don't know. I didn't care, but I went out there and I I got my little groove on, right? So <laughs> I come back and then there's a football player, like huge football player, but he tall and he want to dance. So I'm like, 
can you hold my coat one more time? And they're like, whoa. And I'm looking like, hey, if you got it, you got it, you know, I'm going to the floor. And so um, I went to, so we did that that night. I went to a classroom the next morning. So I got a real good dose of what it's like to party on one night and what it's like to like be in class the next day. And so I, I attended a class with my host. Um, you know, we sat in the first three rows. Like, they had rules. You got to sit in the first three rows of the classroom. The coach right. came by, peeked his head in the window, made sure we were there on time. And the host was like, they do this every day. I'm like, dang, they check your classes every day. She was like, every day. She was like, unless you got like a 4.0, then they don't check your classes because they, they think you're doing something right. So, um, so, you know, had that experience. We did a tailgate, went to a men's basketball game. Now I get to see the guys who tapped on my shoulder and asked me to dance. I get to see them play. And I get to see how everybody is reacting to them in the stadium, right? And the Smith Center, I'm at the Dean E. Smith Center. So I'm like, what? So anyway, Sunday comes. And Coach Hatch was putting the squeeze on me just like the rest of the visits. But my parents are with me this time. So I feel more comfortable, like, really, really putting some thought into saying yes, because they're with me. And so she asked me, you know, what I was looking for in a school, said family atmosphere. We told her our whole list. She was like, okay, did we check your boxes? And we got our list out. We checking them, checking them, telling them. We were like, you know, they didn't have computer science, but they did have an engineering program that they can, like, funnel you to. Right. So I was like, mm, OK, my sister and brother said, don't let that be a deal breaker because I might change my mind. So that was cool with me and my parents. So I wanted to say yes, <laughs> but I was, you know, I felt like let's go home and discuss it. And I got one more visit. So Coach Hatch was like, what's keeping you from saying yes? Because I feel like you really fit in with our players. You had a really good time. They love you. They came in my office and said they want you to come. And so um, I said, well, I have one more visit. And they knew that I really liked North Carolina. And they made me give them their word, my word, that I was going to come on a visit. And to my family, like, your word is your bond. That's all you got. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you don't snitch and you keep your word, you know? And so... right. So anyways, she was like, listen, you don't do them a favor by going if your heart is here. Like, if you know this is where you want to go to school, she was like, let me tell you how much we spent on this visit. You know how much that hotel cost for you and your mom and daddy? We paid this much. Meals, we fed you three meals a day and snacks in between. This is how much we paid on food. This is how much it cost for a ticket. This is how much it cost for the tailgate we had for you. This is how much it cost. You know, like, she just basically told me the whole recruiting budget for my trip and she said I never do this with a recruit because I don't want you to feel like you feel bad that we spent all this money she said but I just need for you to understand how much goes into a recruiting visit how much money is spent so if you go over to Texas A&M and spend those people's time and money this much money but you know your heart is here at the end of that visit when you make your when you finally make your decision of where you're going to school they're going to say she knew she wanted to go there when she left North Carolina. So right. she said, you know, like you do them a disservice, a disservice by going over there, Sylvia. So she said, I'm going to step out the room and let you guys talk about it. She said, because you, you have some really good parents and I'm sure they understand 
what I'm saying right now. So she stepped out the room and my mom was like, listen, she's right. If you know this is where your heart is, don't go over there wasting those people's time and money. Like my parents were blue collar workers. They both worked in the steel mill, Willing Pittsburgh Steel Mill. That's where the name um, Pittsburgh Steelers football team come from because it's a steel mill right. industry, right? And so right. my parents, you know, even though they believe in keeping your word, they also believe in not wasting people's money and time, right? right. So I told them, I confessed. I was like, I, I want to say yes. Like, this is where I want to go. And they supported me. So Coach Hatcher came back in and I said yes. The whole team came rushing in, hugged me and everything. And so then I had to make those dreadful calls to the other schools, but especially Texas A&M, who I promised before they even bought my flight that I was coming on a visit like that. When I tell you, I was like, Mar, you call. She was like, no, 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 no. This is your decision. You're going to make that call. So that was tough, right? I made the call to every school. And although it was very hard for me to pick up the phone and actually say the words out of my mouth, they all understood like they got, they had other recruits on a list, right? Just in case I said no. So now they know, okay, we can't get her like on to the next one. So, I mean, they were disappointed. Some of them asked a couple of questions like, okay, why didn't you choose us? Or why did you choose that over us? You know, and I gave them my explanation, but then they went on and it was fun. It was like the hardest and easiest thing I ever had to do. And um, if anybody that's listening to this is going through the recruiting process, hopefully some of these things will help you like make a list of things that are important to you so that when you come back home from each visit, you can take the emotions out of it. Like take out the fact that George Lynch and, and uh, Rick Fox asked me to dance like outside of that. Did North Carolina check my boxes? Yes, they did. You know, and more importantly, it was the family-like atmosphere that I was looking for. We all went to the same place together, white and black girls. There was no, you know, hierarchy of underclassmen versus underclassmen, white versus black, Christian, non-Christian, none of that. It was just all one big family. And I felt comfortable with that, and I chose North Carolina. So that's the whole high school recruiting process, K-Dot. <laughs> it wow. was a lot. It was stressful. So it was intense. But to this day, I have no regrets on my decision. Jones is outside. Samson is outside. Crawley is in the paint. North Carolina has one chance only. And that's got to be quick. Now Kendra Neal with some counsel from uh, Vicki Johnson. Taking the defense off the ball. Here's the shot, Charlotte Smith. As we were continuing your story um, regarding the recruiting, you decided to go to North Carolina. So let's just kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, more in particular, uh, I, I know, you know, you had, um, you know, you did four years, but your senior year was a magical one because you guys won the national championship. Am I correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. But um, I, I think you can't bypass what happened in the four years while I was there. Um, so when I chose to go to the University of North Carolina, my dad, <clears throat> he wasn't the happiest camper in the world. He respected my decision. He was happy mm-hmm. that it, the, the wait was finally over. The pressure was off of me. I wasn't able to sleep um, very well because everybody kept asking me all the time where I was going. Um, so, you know, it was just kind of like a monkey off my back and he was happy about that, but North Carolina wasn't ranked. Like I had other schools that were ranked in a nation that were recruiting me and they, they were dead last in the ACC to be exact. So, you know, my freshman year, we won two games in the, in the conference and those were the last two games of the season. And we were like, oh, man, we were just starting to put it together. We weren't ready for the season to end, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we wanted to carry that momentum into the next season. But my freshman year was hard, man. My transition was super hard. I had never lifted weights because my growth plates were still open. Like I graduated six four, six four and a half. And, um, you know, I grew another, I mean, I was six, five by the time I got, you know, halfway through my freshman year. So I was still growing. So for boys and girls, really, when your growth plates are still open, you shouldn't do a whole lot of heavy lifting outside of your natural body weight because doctors claim it could stunt your growth. It can create, um, more problems for you in terms of your, your joints and your bones and stuff like that. So um, at least that's what the scientific studies were at that time. So I had never lift weights and like at North Carolina, it was, it was real in the weight room. I mean, these girls were like growling in the mirror and stuff. I was like, Whoa. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't even lift a bar. Like we had to max out on bench press on squats and everybody like cheers you on. I was like, is everybody going to sit there and look at me? They were like, yeah, they're cheering you on. I'm like, can everybody turn around? People had to turn their backs to me while I maxed out on the bench because I was ashamed that I couldn't even, my left arm couldn't get the bar all the way up on one rep. <laughs> like that's oh, how wow. raw I was. And so, um, so, you know, we were just the, I don't want to call us the bad news bears, but we, we pretty much went on losing streaks. That was common for us my freshman year. Um, I can, this, this was a moment that I think helped me become a national champion. My freshman year, I'll never forget, we were headed to the ACC tournament. Before we left, um, everybody was chipping in their dues for our after season party. And they had secured the hall for the part, like where we were going to have it. And I, I was thinking, what happens if we get up here and win? Like, our party was the next day after the first game of the tournament, or maybe two okay. days later. And I'm thinking, like, what happens if we win? How are we going to have a party? Like, th- how is this going to work out? And they were like, oh, don't worry, we won't. We always go up there, play one game, we come back. So they was, you know, they, they was getting ready, they was making moves for the after-season party before we even left for the tournament, right? And I had teammates who – um you know, we had to run sprints. We had to run a mile. And I was nervous. I didn't even think I could run a time sprint down the court and back in 10 seconds, right? Because I had never had it timed in high school. So I just closed my eyes, put my head down, and ran as fast as I could. And when I got back, 
I was ahead of all the post players. So in a water break, the post players like cornered me and was like, what you trying to do? And I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, you trying to make us look bad? I'm like, no, I'm just working hard. They were like, well, we got a pack. All the post players crossed the line at the same time when we finish a sprint. And you're trying to make us look bad by running fast. And I was like, huh, excuse me? And so the captain came over to me and was like, don't listen to them. That's why we go to the ACC tournament and we come back the next day. Because, <laughs> because they don't push us, so they don't want to win. So you, you run with us. So she kind of took me under her wing. And I was like running with the, you know, like the leaders of the team, the captains and stuff. So, um, you know, we went to the tournament. Sure enough, we came back that same night and had our party the next day afterwards. Now, like I'm tripping the whole time. Like this is not, this is not cool. Right. Right. So my sophomore year, we went to the NCAA tournament for the very first time. Like our, our coach was like, you know what? Towards the end of the season, my coach started me. She was like, you know what? Crawley is raw. She can't even have catch the ball. But we're just going to throw her out there. Like, we're just going to work for the future. And hopefully by the time she's a senior, she'll be pretty darn tough, you know? So mm-hmm. they, just, they just made a shift. They Everything was, like, towards the future. Um, they wanted to win a national championship. That's kind of how they recruited me. They're like, we want to win a championship. And we're going to recruit players like you that work hard, that come from blue-collar families, you know, that can help us get it done. So that was the plan. So sophomore year, we get to the NCAA tournament and we played Miami, got spanked, came right back home, but we made it. Like we made it to the big dance, Mm -hmm. Um, but we weren't happy with that. And the coach sat me down and was like, look, the team is only as strong as the weakest player and you're our weakest player, Sylvia. So we need you to get stronger in the weight room. Everybody has a partner. Your partner is the strength coach, Bulldog. We need you to gain 25 pounds. You, we, we're putting you on creatine supplements. Bulldog wants you to take that, and he's going to make your shakes every day at the cafeteria. He's going to make your food, like, fix your plate. Because, like, I couldn't just eat a bunch of junk food and gain weight. I had to have every food group, snacks in between. So it was me and one little scrawny football player that they were <laughs> trying to beef up, right? And we sat together in the cafeteria. They fixed our plates. They fixed our shakes. And... um so, yeah, so there there was this mission to, like, get me bulked up, get me stronger. And as I got stronger, the coach said the team was going to get better, right? So right. we did that. I stayed at school all summer. I didn't go home for, you know, I went to summer school. But I was in the weight room just, like, pumping iron, pumping up, like, drinking creatine shakes. At this time, that was legal to do that, right? I don't know if they can take supplements anymore, but. Back then we could. And so my junior year, it wasn't good enough to just go to the the NCAA tournament and come back home. So we actually made it to the Sweet 16, I think. And we lost to Tennessee by 24 points. We got back. The coach was like, look, I want you to see. We're going to watch film, right? And she said, you need to see with your own eyes. This is not just the coaches blaming you. You need to see that you Tennessee didn't beat you. You beat yourselves. So we, she gave us a sheet of paper. She said, I want you to write down every missed free throw, every missed layup, every unforced turnover. So first play of the game, missed layup. It was me, Sylvia. How many points is that? I'm like, 
two points. She said, mark that down. Then somebody had a one-on-one. They missed the first shot of a (laughs) one-on-one. She said, how many shots could that have been? How many points could we have had? We were like, two points. Write that down. So we did that through the whole game. When we added it up, it was about 20, it was about 28, 29 points or something like that. And we lost by 24. So, you know what I mean? Like how we just made our free throws, this wide open layups. Nobody was around us. We just blew it, right? Unforced turnovers. We thought she was going back door. She wasn't. And we threw it out of bounds, you know? So that year, Tennessee went far and our coach made us watch it. And, um, yeah, I think they made it to the final four and we were sick to our stomachs because we knew that should have been us, right? And, um, we watched the final four. We watched the championship game, and we watched them cut down the nets. And I was just like, nobody is ever going to cut down my nets again. I'm never going to go through this where I'm watching somebody else and the confetti. She made us watch the confetti fall and the speech. Oh, wow. Yeah, we were at her house. We had to stay to the very end. We couldn't get out our phones. We couldn't. Like, I didn't want to see it. It was just hurting me to, like, the core. And um, by this time our coach had replaced every position. Like every year she said, listen, we're recruiting somebody taller than you, Sylvia. She's six, nine, you know, she's stronger than you. If you don't get in the weight room and get stronger, you're going to lose your starting position. They brought in um, Charlotte Smith, brought in Marion Jones, fastest, mm. fastest team in the world. Right. And it was like, look, we're bringing in a point guard that you talk about quick. She is lightning quick. And if y'all don't get better on the off season, I'm telling you, you're going to turn around and your starting position is going to be gone. So I work my butt off every year to keep my starting position, to get stronger. Like she said, I needed to never gain the 25 pounds until maybe like quarantine, until COVID hit last year. (laughs) Just now getting my (laughs) freshman 15 on me. But, um, but. I wish I could say the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, so my junior year, um, the men, our men's basketball team won a national championship. They had Jerry right. Stackhouse. They had Rashid. They had Donald Williams hit the three-point shot to win it. You know, it was um, Derek Phelps. It was um, Brian Reese, like that whole crew. And we were at Franklin Street. We bum-rushed Franklin Street. Like, that's a tradition. We won, we won the ACC tournament, but especially a national championship. You, you go from your dorm, and you literally run across campus to Franklin Street. If you fall down, you're going to get, like, stampeded on. It's that crazy. When we got there, let me tell you, they had cars set on fire. They blocked the streets. People were streaking down the street, butt naked, jumping over bonfires throwing toilet paper in the trees we were like dang this is hot like we i was like yo we gotta win it like i want to see them do this for us like i want to see cars burn down the whole nine right so we made a pack as a team that the next year which is going to be my senior year that we were going to they were going to bum rush franklin street for us so so my senior year hat comes around um, after we watched the film and watched somebody else cut down our nets, we met with the coach and we said, coach, we want to win a national championship. And she said, I'm happy that you arrived. Like I've been, this has been my goal since you've been here, Sylvia, but it's been like pulling teeth to get y'all to conform to what my goal was. Right. And so I'm just happy that 
Like you guys have arrived there. Like you, this is what you want to do. So we're going to hold you to what you say you want to do. There's that accountability thing that I did not like, but, but I wanted to be a champion. And that's the thing. A lot of people say they want to be the best, but they don't want to go through what it takes to actually be the best. They don't want to go through the practice and the training and the process, right? So first day of practice, we got t-shirts in our locker to say national champs on the back. We huddle, put our hands in a huddle before practice start. We say national champs on three. We do a drill and it's time, right? We got to make, you know, 25 layups in two minutes or something like that. Right. And we don't hit the number. She's like, do it again. Put, put the, put the, set the clock back up, do it again. So then she just stop us and be like, get on the line. You're not practicing like national champions. You think you're going to win a national championship practicing like that? We get on the line and be like, dang, we thought we was going hard, you know. It got to the point where we started holding ourselves accountable. Like, we started being like, everybody on the line. We're not practicing. Like, we didn't make a drill, and she said, do it over. I'd be like, coach, can we have a huddle? And I huddle up the team and be going in. And I would be like, starting with me. Everybody got to box out. We're not boxing out like national champions. So I, we'd be on the line. <laughs> and like run to that point like we expected greatness we expected to eat practice dream everything like champions like we try to eat our cereal faster than, than our roommate on the road trip like <laughs> everything was a competition and our coach did something that was brilliant she started making our practices extremely competitive and our mental toughness drills were at the end of practice so we had cutthroat which is like three on three no fouls no out of bounds no crying to the if you cried to the referees and the referees were the coaches if you cried about a foul or some kind of play that was minus one point and the other team got the ball so it was just you suck it up you deal with whatever happens and you just figure out how to channel what you're feeling into buckets and so your team can win Right. And whoever the, the winning team got water and that was the end of practice. Like you were stretching, taking your shoes off. If you lost, you lost you had to run by however many um points you lost by. So if the score, if the winning team had six and another team has zero and another team had two, the team who has zero has six suicides. Like we can't even call them suicides no more because you know, our players can't handle that. But we gotta call them victory sprints today. But back when I played it was exactly what it was called. Yep. <laughs> Suicide yep. When I played, too. <laughs> they had garbage cans at both ends of the court just in case you puked, right? That's just the yep. way it was. And so, um, so yeah, like our freshman year, I mean, my senior year, we only lost two games. Like our our, our record ended up being 33-2. and two. Mm-hmm. So, at, like we hadn't faced a lot of adversity and our coaches – created verse adversity within our practices for us to overcome because she knew like down the line it's going to be tough to win a national championship and if they've never had to overcome any adversity then how are they going to be mentally tough enough to win a championship and so I remember we had a goal to win the boards and however many we lost the the rebounds by in a game we had a um, suicide for each one well, we beat Georgia Tech, but lost the boards by 23. And we had 23 suicides in one practice. 
we started yeah. out with three suicides and then you know we did our warm-up <laughs> and then we had three more suicides and then we did you know some shooting drills so she split it up for us but when I tell you this was, I mean, and she had all the hardest defensive drills. We had shield drill. We had transition defense. We, had, it was like all we had cutthroat that day. She didn't spare us anything. Like it was a tough practice. I'm mean, some people didn't make it. Like we carried some people off the court. I'm talking at water breaks. There were people that were having meltdowns, and we would circle around them. We had this thing called circle your wagons anything ever went wrong we circled our wagons like we circled around that person if a fight broke out in the game we would circle around the player that they was trying to fight so they couldn't get to them right and at the water at the water break we would circle our wagons around somebody and like make them put their head back <laughs> and be like do not let that tear fall down your face don't ever let the coaches know they broke you ever so you just got to suck it up you cry when you get to your room but don't cry in this practice we don't cry in practice right <laughs> we have our head back we have tissues at the corner of our eye, but that dark tear better not roll down your face. <laughs> That's so, a fact. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we went through a lot that year. But we were, like, undefeated for a long time, but we were going through so much adversity. People had no idea what was going on on the inside. We lost, in the, um, we lost to Virginia twice. That was our only team. We only lost to one team, but we lost to them twice. And then we had to face them in the ACC championship game. And we knew that if we got them a third time, we were going to get them. And so, um, but, you know, everybody was like, I don't know. Virginia beat y'all twice. They got y'all's number and this and that. When I tell you, Coach Hatchell gave a pregame speech of her life in the locker room. Everybody went out charging, ready to go. And I was the captain, so I'm counting heads to make sure we got everybody. We line up small as the tallest for the layup line. We got four women who can dunk, so we we I line them up back to back to back to back, so we could just like, you know, mentally destroy the team before we even play them. And Marion is not in line. I'm counting. There's one missing, and I was Marion's big sister. We have big sister, little sister program. So I'm like, where's baby girl at? She was a freshman when I was a senior. I go back to her locker. She's sitting in her locker. I'm like, baby girl, what's wrong? A tear rolled down her face. And I'm like, you sick? Like, you can't be sick. This is ACC. Like, what? I was like, what's going on? She said, I just want to win. And a tear rolled down her face again. And I'm like, dang, she want to win so bad. Like, it's it's hurting her. I had never experienced competitiveness on that level in my life. So I sat down beside her. Like, we had a moment. And, like, a tear ran, ran down my face. Like, because I mm. was just so moved by the moment, you know? Like, we knew this was our only hurdle. We knew if we beat Virginia, we were going all the way. But that's how important this game was, right? So our teammate Charlotte Smith was like, hey, where y'all at? The band is – like, the band would play before we ran out. The cheerleaders was lined up to, you know, run with the flags beside us. And me and Marion in there crying because we want, we want to win so bad, right? So Charlotte comes in there, and she's like, what's, what's going on? I was like, we just want to win, dog. She sat down and was like, oh, dang. <laughs> so then we finally, like – Wiped the tears from our eyes, ran out the locker room, dunking. The, the, we were three of the people who could dunk. Um, but in that game, K-Dot, we played in a team zone. 
I've never mm. experienced this before or after this moment. I've been in a zone myself. Like, you know, when you're in a zone, like you just, you, you feeling it that day. But our right, whole right. team was in a zone. I've never expected, like, I'm talking, I could be falling down, throw up a shot, and it would go in. And we were, like, cracking mm. up laughing because we knew, like, this is our moment. Like, it's, <laughs> it was, like, nothing I've ever experienced before in my life. All the calls was going our way. We was getting, it was, like, it was, like, contagious. We was feeding off of the energy of it. We was, like, chest bumping and high-fiving it. And, like, we couldn't miss. We couldn't miss shots. Like, when we watched the film, we just cracked up laughing. Like, I can't believe that shot went in. Like, we made up moves that we ain't never even tried before. We just tried it in that game, and it worked. <laughs> so, we ended up beating Virginia, and we knew, like, there's no stopping us. This was the one hurdle we had to get over. So, um, yeah, we get to the Final Four. We're playing Purdue the first game. We played um, La Tech in the championship game. La Tech mm-hmm. had a dynasty at this time, like old school right. La Tech with Teresa Witherspoon and all yes. of them. Yes. <laughs> Man, they had a legacy, you know. And so, Teaspoon, yeah. And their girls, like, these was ball. I'm talking ball is life for these girls, right? <laughs> they just look like ballers. So... You know, we did our little dunks. That didn't even phase them. Like, they was, they they knew. They had scouted us. They knew what it was. They knew they had to, like, be more physical with us. We were more finesse, you know, and athletic and quick and all of that. Um, so, you know, we played, we played that game. And then, like, at the end of the game, it was tied up. And then we ended up down by two with seven-tenths of a second left on the clock. Mm. my dad was like oh they lost I'm gonna go get the car to beat the traffic he left to go get the car (laughs) right (laughs) my mom missed the most important moment of my life because it was Easter Sunday April 2nd 1994 my mom was on her knees in the um you know how you walk up to go to the concession stand on the steps she was on the steps praying with her hands folded and her eyes closed she didn't see this moment so, um, we Coach Hatchell called a play for me. This was a play we called it 20s, where Marion, who was the point guard, set a cross screen for me. We were both on the blocks. Like, Marion's in front of mm-hmm. the ball. I'm on the opposite block. She set a cross screen for me. They throw it up in front of the rim, and I just catch an alley-oop it before my feet hit the ground. Like, that was the play. And that we ran that play, that game, and it worked a couple of times, right? And I'm a senior, so the coach is like, all right, we got to go with our seniors. Um, and so they told the inbounder, if she's not open, call a timeout. Because the, the, the play was easy to scout. It's just people couldn't jump with me, so we just threw it and made it work, right? Right. Um, so the inbounder felt like I wasn't open. I felt like she could have threw it up and I could have got it, but <laughs> she didn't feel comfortable. She called a timeout. We went over to the side. Coach Hatchell, um, and and my if I if that play would have worked, we would have tied it and gone into overtime. Which you know we are conditioned to kick it in another gear at the because at the end of practice, mind you, this is when we do our mental toughness drill. So we're comfortable in overtime. We're comfortable, like, at the end of the game because that's when we, like, really dig in. So we go to the side, and Coach was like, no, bump this. We're not going for the two. We're going for a three. We're going for the win. 
And the staff was looking at her like, what are you doing? We just need two points, coach. And she just trusted her gut. Like, she just went against what everybody thought we should do. And she drew up a play. It was a triangle play, like screen to screener. Everybody in America runs this play. But she did, but she changed where we were standing. She changed two of the players up. And instead of going to, Tanya Sampson was the other senior, right? And normally you would, if it didn't work, if my play didn't work, then you go to your other senior and put it on your seniors back to win it, right? But she went to Charlotte Smith, who had only made eight threes in her whole career. And in, in the huddle, though, we had four people that was secretly hoping Coach would call their number to, to win the shot. Like, mm-hmm. you got some teams where at the end of the game, you got players, they don't want no parts of that ball. They are hiding because they don't want the pressure of losing the game. <laughs> you know what I mean? But for us, like, losing wasn't an option. We were like, oh, Coach, give me the rock. I'll win the game. I was like, do it. Run 20s again. I thought I was open, you know. <laughs> like Everybody wanted their play call, right, because they believed they could win it. Except for one person, that was Charlotte. Now she believed that she could do it, but she her head was so gone that she was like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe we down by two. We worked this hard, like you know." She was having those thoughts. Coach called to play for her, so we get out on the court and do our fi- our starting five huddle. You know, like you got the huddle after the huddle, and she looks at me and was like, "What are we doing, dog?" I'm like. Charlotte, we're running 30s for you. You're going to shoot the shot. She's like, me? I'm like, yes, bend your knees, follow through. We all like coaching her what she needs to do. <laughs> she had a habit of not following through aggressively, right? So we like, bend your, like, snap your wrist, bend it. You got it, you got it. So we go out there, and I realized that the last time we ran this play, they switched it, and it didn't work. So when Coach called it, I was like, like, oh, they had that scouted the last time we ran it, right? But, you know, she made the call. So that's how we were. Once she made the call, everybody was on board. Even the staff that felt like, Coach, we don't really need it too. But, like, you know, when the leader makes the call, that's it. Everybody got to believe. And it's up to the players on the court to make that work, regardless of what the coach um, called. We're the ones that got to execute it. We're the ones that got to make it work. So we go out there. And I'm thinking, like, okay, they switched it the last time, so I'm going to scream my own man. Instead of screaming her man, I'm going to scream my own man so that my man can't switch out on her. And so we ran the play. I was supposed to set the up screen for Charlotte. I stayed in my spot and screamed my own man. And the ball went to Charlotte wide open. Nobody open. was near her. She was, she was, I mean, oh, my when God. I tell you, she bent that knee. She flicked that wrist so hard. I swear, like, if you see the picture of it, it looked like she broke her wrist, followed through it. Poetry <laughs> emotion. <laughs> Poetry emotion. That ball went in, like, swish. Listen, the ball rotated in the air, seemed like a thousand times. And, like, I couldn't, when the ball was in the air, the whole place went silent. This is at Richmond Coliseum. There were thousands. There was not an empty seat in the place. I could hear a pin drop at this moment. I couldn't hear anything as the ball was spinning. And then I ran under the basket as if I had time to get a rebound. (laughs) But I was just conditioned to, like, on a shot, I'm I'm crashing. So I'm under the basket. The ball goes through the net and falls in my hands. And I can now hear everybody (laughs) screaming again. 
I threw the ball up in the air. I'm like, we Knoxville cheerleaders. We like going crazy. We all dove on Charlotte. The cheerleaders dove on us. People coming out the stands, diving on us. Like it was just a pile. I was at the bottom with my leg turned backwards. I I was injured at the bottom of the pile. I was like, y'all work me. <laughs> <laughs> but we had an array of emotions. We didn't know whether to just scream or cry. We just kept looking at each other like, we actually, like, we're national champions. We couldn't believe it. We just, it just, it took maybe about two weeks for it to really sink in. I was in my room with my roommate who didn't even play basketball. And I just started screaming, like, we're national champions. It was like, what? <laughs> like, it just, it just finally, like, just really hit me. So, mm-hmm. We win a national championship. We get in the locker room. Coach Hatchell is just congratulating us. They're they're pointing out all the good plays and stuff. So she said, all right, ladies, you got two choices. We can either go to a four-star, five-star restaurant, you know, and eat really good, stay in a nice hotel, get a good night's sleep, and go back to Chapel Hill in the morning. Or we can go some get some fast food and get back to Chapel Hill tonight. So she's like, you know, y'all want a, a nice steak dinner or you want fast food? We're like, McDonald's! <laughs> <laughs> so literally, what a, we what a commercial campaign that would be. <laughs> and we stopped at McDonald's and got Happy Meals. <laughs> <laughs> listen, what, listen, if McDonald's found that out, what a commercial campaign that would have been <laughs> that night. Listen, on the bus, on the way to McDonald's, I'm like, everybody, get your homework out, do your homework, because when we hit Franklin Street, it's on. Like, I want to cars on fire, toilet paper in the trees, like, everything we saw happen for the men, we wanted to get back to Franklin Street and Chapel Hill to see that. So we got our little, you know, little bags of food, we didn't even want to eat it at McDonald's. I was like, everybody get it to go. Get our food back on the bus. Coach wanting to play music, celebrate. I'm like, Coach, can you turn the music down? People want to do their homework. She's like, y'all just won a national championship. You want to do your homework? We're like, yes, ma'am. She didn't know, like, once we got there, we weren't going to be doing no homework. We was hitting, right. We was it was right on and popping. Right. So we get back. We fell asleep. It's like three hours away. Everybody sleep, lights out on the bus. When we hit the city limits, there was a police car that escorted us, right? So they caught right. us at the city limits. They got their sirens on, and we get to run red lights and everything because we're the national champions. And so Coach Hatchell turned on the lights in the bus. She got the microphone out. She said, ladies, wake up. We're in Chapel Hill. So we all, like, jump up and get to the window, like, wherever our seat was. We was, like, plastered to the window. And we're like, tell the bus driver to, to go around Franklin Street. So he made like a the long version to our gym and um, went went down Franklin Street. And when we got to Franklin Street, there was one little guy standing out there. And he was like, Lady Tar Hills. We saw maybe a little bit of toilet paper in one tree, but not all the trees. There was no fire. There was no streakers. <laughs> like, there was no police officers blocking the the block off or nothing like it was one little guy sitting there screaming lady tar hills we love you we're like dang they don't do nothing for the women like this street was lit last year so we like pissed so we go to the gym 
we got to take our shoes and, you know, and our gym bags and put it in our lockers and stuff. So we go in our gym and it's dark in there. So the coach turns the lights on and everybody's in Carmichael Auditorium. And they just pop out like, surprise! And it's just the band is playing and cheerleaders. Like, it's lit in our gym. We were expecting it on Franklin Street, but they caught, I guess the coaches had told them that we were expecting some big celebration. I don't know, but they got it organized. And when I tell you, they were in our gym. And so we, you know, we got the the welcome that we wanted when we came back to town. So that was um, just a special moment because I saw our team go from, you know, oh, I hope Virginia and Duke don't blow us out by 40 my freshman year. Like there were times where we didn't want to come out the locker room for the game because we knew we were going to get blown out to my, to my senior year where we were like, oh, we're going to get them. <laughs> like that's a huge mentality shift. Right. And, and I, and I think like championships, it takes mental toughness, but they're one in the locker rooms. You know what I mean? Like when players start holding themselves accountable, when you got a player that like is sitting at her locker and she just, a tear falls down her eye because she want to win so bad. Like before we even played Virginia, that game was won in the locker room. You know what I mean? Like the zone that we experienced, like that started in the locker room. We we would have people be like, my legs are tired. Your legs? We're like, no, no, you you're the only one with your legs tired. Like we we wouldn't let any negative talk become contagious. We would just nip it in a bud. I'd be like, no, my legs ain't tired. I ain't tired. Like the word tired wasn't even in our vocabulary. But when I tell you we were dead dog tired, we just wouldn't speak it. And in a championship game, like this is where mental toughness kick in. Like our legs were like jelly. Like when you play, mm. like our record was 33 and two. So you play 35 games, the most amount of games collegially. Our, our bodies right. had never been there before. We had never had a season that long. So like your legs won't go. They don't want to run no more. But your mind is saying, oh, you will take another step. You will get one last rebound. You will make this turnaround jump shot. Like you will make this free throw. Your mind starts to will your body on what it has to do. Right. And your body got to line up with that, with your mind. And so if you're not mentally tough, if you haven't been through some adversity and overcame it, because that's how you condition your mind to be mentally tough. Right. You, right. If you never go through anything, it's just not going to happen like that. And the coaches who know that, like Gino is brilliant at this. Gino puts his player because they play in a conference where, you know, it's not as challenging for them. And right. so he put, he's their biggest competition. He puts them through so much. And they, I think personally, they can't stand his guts during the season. And he loves it like that because it pulls mm-hmm. them together. <laughs> like the one thing that they got in common, because, you know, girls, girls could be petty. They got all kind of stuff and they don't like, I don't like her. She doesn't like that. But they got one thing in common. They can't stand Gino during the season. He didn't want them having social media. He don't want them having them cell phones. He, he like he will just if you think you if you're arrogant, you think you all that. He won't start you like just to like make you overcome all of that. It's it's tough. It is really tough. And they go through that for four years. I just went through it for one year. <laughs> you know, like my senior years when it really like they tightened it up on us. And so um, 
So, yeah, how I draw from that as an adult today, like, I have a fashion design company, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, a little bit later, but I could be making masks, making um, a jacket, a dress, or something like that, and my mom, like, the post office closed at 5 o'clock, so I got to leave, you know, mail my stuff off. I got to leave my house by at least 4.45, so it could get around 4.15, 4 o'clock, and my mom will be like, uh, I don't think you're going to get these last few masks done. So you might as well just, you know, wrap up and take what masks you have done to the post office. I'm like, mom, listen, when seven tenths of a second is on the clock, that's when the champions, the champion in me come out. Like, so I, I'm, it's like the shot clock is going off. I can make like five more masks before I got to leave for four, at 445. It's like, you know. Thanks. If I have to write a paper, if I got to, you know, like now I'm writing grants, I'm doing all kind of stuff. But like when it's the last seconds counting, that's when I kick it in another level. Like that's where that go to mentality comes out in me. Like, get me the rock coach. Like we're going to win it all. (laughs) So I still draw from that moment to this very day. Mm. Mm. So. You win, you win the national championship, and then as far as your career is concerned, you move into, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you move into the ABL with the Portland Fire. Well, first I went overseas. When I, okay, when I graduated, gotcha. there wasn't a league in the United States for women. Okay. So you had to go overseas. That was your professional basketball career. So I signed my very first contract shortly after winning the national championship um, to play in France. That was my very first contract. Oh. I signed for $40,000 for the year. It was an eight-month season. Uh-huh. So I got paid about $5,000 a month. That was big money coming straight out of college, you know. <clears throat> and... um. I came out with Rashid Wallace, Stackhouse, McGinnis, mm-hmm. Grant Hill over at Duke. That was a buddy of ours. <clears throat> um, they're going pro. I'm going pro. But pro for me looks very different than how it looked for Jerry Stackhouse. And so um, I signed my contract. It said that I would have um, a house, a car, an interpreter, you know, gear, um, all of these things in my contract. When I got there, I had no car. The gym was, you know, a block and a half away from where I stayed. So they said, you don't need a car. And if you want to go somewhere during the weekend, just call the coach. He'll come get you. I'm like, what? Call the coach? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Well, our coach was young. He was from Guadalupe, and he was black. Oh, okay. And he, he was only about maybe 27, 28 years old. And at this time, I'm like 20, right? Um, 20 going on. To, I graduated when I was 20 years old and I turned 21 mm-hmm. that fall in France. So, so yeah, um, my apartment is in an alley across the street from the largest prison in France. And there's graffiti all over the building and it's every curse word in English, but I'm pretty sure the people who wrote this didn't even speak English. Um, <laughs> I was thinking in my mind. And so like I had, our practice was at night because the men's team took the earlier practice time. So you had kids after school come in. This was a club, right? So we had all age mm-hmm. groups in our club. 
So the kids got to come in after school, then the men's team practice, and then we got whatever time was left at night. So sometimes I wouldn't even get out of practice till about 10 o'clock at night. Like we practice at either seven or eight, get out at 10. I'm walking to my apartment through an alley with potholes in the alley, right? So I'm twisting my ankle. I'm trying to see, you know, and there's a, like the prison is right next door. And sometimes the lights would like, there'd be like a siren. There'd be lights flashing through the neighborhood. And I'm like, did somebody escape from this prison? Like what? (laughs) What is going on? (laughs) I'm thinking in my mind, like Jerry Stockhouse is not going through this right now. Like he's making millions, you know, he don't even need an interpreter. His family could go watch him play. I kept a journal for like 12 years and I, I can vividly remember writing that in my journal about how, you know, my friends, we all had a pro party. They were going pro, I'm going pro. But when we, when I went overseas and I got on that plane and went across the water, my life drastically changed. Right. And so, um, I model and played basketball. So modeling was kind of like an outlet for me Mm -hmm. when, um, things didn't go well with our team. And that was a whole nother world because Europe is very, open about their sexuality and it's just different over there so so um you know because I was so tall I couldn't model like a regular rack of clothes so I can only model the dresses that were sleeveless or fitted and so they would have me with no undergarments up under my dress but there was one dressing room for men and women so they you know when you finish on the runway they would be backstage, like helping you change your clothes to the next thing real quick so you can get back on the runway. So I'm back there like butt naked and this guy's walking by. And I'm like, what the heck? And it could be like a girl kissing a girl in the corner, a guy kissing a guy. It's just everything was going on in this in this back dressing room. I'm like, I'm coming My from goodness, Chapel Coach. Hill. So <laughs> this is like a shell shock for me. But um but it was just like a, a total opposite life than kind of like basketball, you know, like basketball. I just had my hair slicked back. I was overseas, so I didn't, even, I didn't even do my hair when I was playing basketball. But then I'm modeling, so it's like, you know, you've got makeup and hair and you're dressing and you're walking on the runway with heels on. So it was a, um, a contrast in worlds for me. Um, it was there that I met Bruce Bowen and his wife at oh, the wow. time, Allison. Um, he was married at the time. And he played in Evro for a team with um, with Tony Parker. And so he and I, um, we had a mutual friend. So we hit it off, Bruce and I hit it off right away. And um, I used to go to their games. So that like gave me a reason to kind of like get out on the weekends, put on some regular clothes, look cute, and go to the game and cheer for them. Um, but they start coming to my games, right? And so um, Bruce would bring Tony Parker to my games. He was like, man, she could dunk. And so Tony Parker would be at my games like, Crawley, smash! You know how his eyebrows, <laughs> you know how his eyebrows yeah. look? <laughs> He'd be from like, smash, smash, Crawley. Like, that's they call dunk smashes over there. Like, smash, smash. I'm like, dude, I'm at the three-point line. Like, I can't dunk every shot. So um, it got to the point where he would catch a train by himself without Bruce just to come to our games. Like he just was fascinated that a woman could dunk. And we had Mm -hmm. like great fan support. Um, It was just very interesting for me to like be celebrated in that way for um, 
for my skills. And, and I felt like I wasn't celebrated in that same way in the States. It was crazy. But um, like they'd have a drum and they like play the drums and they sing during the fans would do this. <laughs> you know, they make their own posters. We didn't have like posters like we had in North Carolina. Um, so it was different, you know, like there was a lot of smoking in the gym. So at halftime, they open up the door and, you know, let the smokers go out and keep the door open. It's freezing in the gym. Like literally, I literally warm up with gloves and a jacket on because um, there's no heat in the gym anyways. And they got the door open. So very different, very different lifestyle than here in the States, like my apartment. I didn't have a microwave. I didn't have a toaster. I didn't. I had a washer, but no dryer. I didn't have an um, electrical heater in my apartment. So the supervisor turned on the heat when they thought it was time, right? But it'd be like, mm. they. we have monsoon season where it rained every day in the fall, and they wouldn't turn on the heat till like December. And I'm like, what is freezing in here like you couldn't control the heat in your own apartment the superintendent did it for the whole building and so i was like i need a space heater or i'm not coming to practice tomorrow until y'all get me a heater they're like that's not in your contract i said well listen if i'm sick then i won't be able to play like you just have to put your foot down and strike you have to go on strike i said i'm not coming to practice tomorrow until y'all give me my money till y'all give me my heater and thank God I had a good agent. My agent spelled everything out in my contract. Like she said that I needed a, at least a queen size bed on a bed frame. That's very important. If you're going overseas, right. if you, like for women, if you don't put that like specifically in your contract, you will have a twin size mattress on the floor. Oh, wow. <laughs> With no pillows, right? And you think that's that's small, but... When you got to get up and play and your back is hurting because you're laying on a, like a cot basically. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, she put full size refrigerator or you will have a dorm size refrigerator. Um, you know, like my, my family came over for Thanksgiving and I was doing good until they came to visit me. And so my sister was like, um, where's your toaster? I want to make some toast. I was like, you got to light up that gas stove and put some butter on the bread and then flip it over and toast the other side. <laughs> she was like, what? You don't have no toaster? And then we only had hot water for like five minutes. I was like, five minutes? You gotta go because all four of us got a shower. Like after that, it's cold water. So I would get up like at five o'clock in the morning just to get my shower so the hot water tank could heat back up so that my guests could take a shower. Like, it's yeah. just a totally mm-hmm. different lifestyle over there. And they didn't wow. have a lot of money I mean, in a budget for, like, stuff you needed in your apartment. they rather use that for your salaries. So it was either, okay, either you want a, a, a luxurious apartment and you're going to get paid less money. I was like, nah, I'm good. Give me the money. <laughs> so no interpreter. I had to just get in the back of the line figure out what they were i'll be like oh that's just five man weave three player two man back on the way back you know i was like oh okay i know what that is and then i would jump in line but there was no one to say okay then this next drill you're gonna do this pass here no no you just have to figure it out and so the mental toughness that i developed at north carolina helped me stay for eight months there were a lot of americans that went over there but 
after Christmas, they never came back. They're like, man, this is crazy. (laughs) I was like, no, I'm going back. Like, I love it. So, you know, I would learn the language. I learned how to speak a little bit of French um, from watching the movie Friday. I had a DVD player. I watched Fridays with the um, subtitles on there. I watched it in French, watched it in Spanish. Like, you know, after practice, you only practice for two hours a day. After that, right. the whole day, you have free range. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, let me learn some French, you know. Um, my best friend was homeless. His name was Frank. He lived in a box near McDonald's. And every day after practice, I went and got a Big Mac and I crawled in his box. And I was like, what's up, Frank? He spoke perfect English. He had a little accent, but, um, we would like talk about music. We debate about sports. Like <laughs> I was like, and he played for our club. Like our club let him be on one of the lower level men's um, teams, just so he can, you know, take a shower. And they gave him sweat sweatsuits and shoes and stuff like that, just you know, so he can clean okay. up. But when I tell you that was like my best friend, and they caught him at my house one day and was like, he mustn't be here. You mustn't let him sit on your couch. <laughs> you mustn't. I was like, that's my friend. What do you mean? And one time they saw me in his box. So they knew I always hung out at, like near the McDonald's because all the Americans would be in that area. And um, mm-hmm. they saw me getting out of his box and they were like, you mustn't climb in his box. I'm like, that's my friend. <laughs> Frank. <laughs> but Frank asked me one time, he was in my apartment and he, he, he asked me what my passion was. And I was like, my passion? He's like, yeah, what is your passion? He's like, is it play basketball? He said, your passion is something that you would do even without money. And I was like, huh. Look, I don't feel like they pay me enough to do what I'm going through over here. And and Frank's passion was he loved to sing. And his, his goal was to, like, come to America and sing with Stevie Wonder one day. Like, that's what he was passionate about. And at the time, like, our team wasn't doing good. I was homesick. So I was just like, I don't know what my passion is. It ain't basketball because they, I wouldn't do this for free. I'm just be honest with you. And Frank was like, he said he felt sorry for me because I was an American girl without a passion. Like, I had all the opportunity in the world, and I didn't know what my passion was. And that cut me like a knife, Kevin. Like, I couldn't sleep that night. I was just like search and search for my passion, you know? And mm-hmm. so, um, so then shortly after that, I got a letter in the mail and it said that a league was coming to the United States and that I would no longer have to play overseas where my fans and my family couldn't see me play. Um, and they, you know, they asked me if I wanted it to be called the ABL or the WABL. And they said, you know, the men, don't say the men's NBA, they just call it the NBA. So would you like for this mm-hmm. to be called the ABL or the WABL? And I said, I, I think it should be called the ABL. They said, should the should the rim be lowered or should it be a 10-inch, 10-foot goal? And they wanted my input as one of the you know few women who could slam dunk. And I said, well, we have women who have practiced a three-point shot all their lives on a 10-foot goal. I think if you lowered it, it would, it, you know what I mean? Like all that it changes the trajectory the drink, of everything. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and right. so I said, and plus, if someone dunked it with the rim lowered, I don't think we would get the credibility of the crowd. Like people would be like, yeah, they dunked. Yeah, that's because the rim was lowered. I could dunk on that basket. 
you know, so it still wouldn't be respected. I said, I think you leave it at 10 foot, 10 feet. They said, should we have a smaller ball so that more women can palm the ball? Um, and I'm like, then again, there are three point shooters, you know, all the rest of the players who can't dunk, they practice with a ball, a certain size, right? Right. Three point shot. So they know how hard to push it, how, you know, how they should shoot it and, so I said, no, leave the ball the same, leave the rim size the same, leave the court side the same. They want to make the court shorter. Like we had an opportunity to like create whatever we wanted and they were taking our opinions. They were listening to it. And so I love the fact of being able to create or craft my own league. And I chose to play in the ABL. Well, I got another letter that said, there's another league coming. Don't go to the other league. Wait for this league because this one has the backing of the NBA. They have commercials, endorsements, and, you know, and it's going to be built off of the Olympians will be the um, marquee players for each team. So they'll get exposure from the Olympics. And and that one wasn't coming for another couple of years. And I was like, mm-hmm. I'm ready to go home. So, <laughs> um, so these leagues were in the making, but not quite here yet, you know, so. I think I ended up playing in Spain the next year. Um, so I'm starting all over again. I got to learn how to speak Spanish, which is similar to French. Like the root words are the same. The endings are different. So um, not as big of an adjustment for me, um, but played in Spain. And then um, and then the ABL started. And so even when I came to the U.S. to play professionally, we still played overseas on our off seasons. So, right, right. And and then I played USA basketball for eight years out of my life. And so, um, you know, when you play USA basketball, you compete abroad. Most of my teams overseas were cup teams. Um, so if you're familiar with FIBA, the top four teams in every country are um, part of the European Cup. So you right. compete in your country on the weekends for women's basketball Saturdays. I think men's, some of the games are... Um, either Fridays or Sundays, but we played on Saturdays, but our cup games were on Wednesdays. So we traveled to other countries to compete, you know, for our cup. And so I'm pretty sure safe to say every team I played on was a cup team. So I did a lot of traveling throughout my career, um, you know, as a professional and playing for USA basketball as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. Like I've had some interesting, interesting stories, like in Italy, my team was mafia owned. And so the head mafia guy who was our president happened to love dark skinned black women with red lipstick, Mm -hmm. which I play. I mean, if you like dig up some old pictures of me, action shots, like my hair was done and had lipstick on because I had endorsements through. OPI nail polish. I was endorsed by Nike. Um, I was endorsed by Dunkin' Donuts. Um, so that's how I marketed myself, you know, because mm-hmm. at the time, women didn't make a whole lot in salaries. Your money came from your endorsements and from overseas. Right. So, um, so yeah, the president would like pick me up, take me to like banquets and stuff like that with him for fundraisers, and I was going everywhere with him. I would go to like a farmer's market by myself and people would be giving me like free fruit, free bags of food and stuff. And like, cause I had my team jackets and stuff on that had our team name. 
So they knew right. that, you know, our team was mafia owned. And so they would just say, like, let Pasquale know I took care of you. <laughs> We're like, okay. <laughs> so in this city, I didn't even need money. Like, I just, if I ate at a restaurant, it was free. Like, everything was just free. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, I can recall we played against, there was one other mafia-owned team in my league. We played against them, and they were our rivals, right? And so Mm -hmm. in the locker room came our president, the vice president, the GM. Like, everybody came in black suits with black briefcases. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? I don't have an interpreter. I don't know what's going on, right? So they all stopped. We're sitting on a bench, like on our little bench before the game. The coach is giving a pregame speech. They stopped in front of each player with a briefcase, opened it up. It's got Rolex watches in there for the whole program. If we beat the rival teams with the diamonds around the face of it, I'm like, let's go. <laughs> hold on, coach. Hold on, coach. Let me hold something right quick. I mean, <laughs> the Rolex, the Roly, the Roly with the diamonds. And they knew I oh, have been shopping goodness. in Italy because. Rolexes are supposed to be like a little bit cheaper there. And I wanted a Louis Vuitton bag. I had a list of things that I wanted to buy while I was in Italy. And a Rolex was one of them. And they knew that. So that's why they brought brought the Rolexes in. Um, We did not win that game. And I tell you, I was just so upset. (laughs) But like, just imagine like something like that happening. I remember... um, Pasquale came and picked me up. We flew on his private plane and we went to Sicily, where he's from. Now, you don't own, and this was on the beach. You don't own a house on the beach unless you're mafia or mafia descendant. They don't ever sell their houses. They just will it to the next generation. So, on the way there, he said, in every powerful Italian man's life, there is one woman that's running his life. That's running the whole show. It's either his mama or his woman. And I said, which one is it for you? He just said, ah, and gave me like two smacks on the cheek. Like the Italians are very aggressive. Like they want to smack your face or pull your ear. But that's like, that's how they, that's like a sign of endearment for them. (laughs) Right, right. I I get it. Right. (laughs) I get it. So we get to, we get to Sicily. We get to the house. His mom was there. She's in, she's like bedridden. She can't get out the bed. Like she's on bed rest. Mm -hmm. And her headboard is like handcrafted wood with two seats built in on both sides. Like that's how massive this headboard was. Like the, the craftsmanship of it is just etched in my mind to this day. But he sat on one side. I sat on the other side and she, she couldn't speak English. So he had to interpret for me. And she said, how do you find Reggio? So I lived in a city called Reggio Emilia. And um, I said, it's fine. You know, she said, are you adjusting well? I said, I'm adjusting. She wanted to know if the girls were like, you know, helping me, the team helping me. And I said, yeah. And she said, "Um, is there anything that you need? And I said, well, we don't have our running shoes. And the coach has us running the mountains. We don't have our shoes yet. And it's just hard on my knees and stuff. And she was, I didn't speak Italian at this time, but I knew all the curse words. And when I tell you, mm. she said every last curse word that I knew to him. And then he looked at me and said, we will have your shoes soon. 
She said, <laughs> she said, what else? I said, well, it's getting cold outside and we don't have our coats yet. You know, like we don't have our sweats and coats and stuff like that. And she went off on him again. And he said, you will have your coat soon. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, I know who the woman is that's running his life. It's his mama. <laughs> like, yes, indeed. I got the feeling in that moment that she was really the president of our team. She knew everything about me. She knew my stats. She had been reading the newspaper. She knew everything that she could, all the information that she could gather from her bed. She knew it. She knew what was going on with the team, everything. She knew who wasn't passing me the ball. She asked me how I felt about that. I was like, dang. So um, we fly back. I told him I knew who the woman was in his life that was running everything, his mom. Um, We got back to our city. We made one stop. And then by the time I got to my apartment, I had shoes. I had a big down bubble coat in my in my um apartment <laughs> like i had everything that i had talked to his mom about it was in my apartment by the time i got back i was like wow so just you know interesting and my dad he watches like scarface a lot of mafia movies he was like did they have boats in the back did they have did you look at the pictures on the wall i was like yeah look at the pictures on the wall there they have men with guns like all the men in their in their family like black and white pictures. He was like, Yeah, that's mafia. He was like, What about go like going there? I was like, Dad, you trying to get me shot. I'm not going I'm not doing this stuff. <laughs> but my dad just thought that was just like the wildest thing he had ever heard in his life. So yeah, so that was Italy. I love Italy, love the food, love the pasta, love the desserts. Um, so that was a easy adjustment for me because Italian is very similar to Spanish. So learning the language and the customs and everything was not that difficult. Korea, Korea was the most difficult country to adapt to because I usually learn how to read a language first. Then I learn how to write. Then I learn how to speak. But in Asia, they don't have letters. It's like character characters, right? (laughs) like symbols and stuff and so it was very hard to learn how to read how to speak how to write um in asia is like opposite of us like we shake hands they bow they take off their shoes when you enter a building you know they sit on the floor in indian style at a restaurant you know um it's just like completely opposite like my first encounter with my coach fresh off the airplane my interpreter, I did have an interpreter in Korea and he wanted to say, welcome to the team. We're so happy to have you. So I'm looking at the interpreter and I'm looking at him and I'm shaking my head, making eye contact. And my interpreter said, um, actually you mustn't look him in his eyes directly. And I'm like, huh? She's like, it's very, very disrespectful to look an elder or superior in their eyes. Like the coach, he's like, the leader so you cannot look him in his eyes i said where should i look she said down so i looked down so i was like can i look at you she's like yes i'm your age so you can look at me but you cannot look at him (laughs) so i'm like what the heck i'm thinking like i'm being respectful by giving him eye contact like at north carolina they were big on that like look them in the eyes you shake your hand and acknowledge that you understand you hear them this was totally disrespectful i'm like what the heck um, like an elder, if we won a game, our um, presidents of the team and the GMs, they want to give you a shot of liquor. 
and you mm. had if an elder gives you a shot of liquor, you had to drink it. I was like, I don't drink. They were like, No, you must. I said, I don't listen, I don't drink. I don't want the shot. And so they were like, You must take so they were giving shots to like the younger girls on our team and they couldn't let him watch them drink it. They had to turn their back, take the shot, turn back around, giving the glass back and say thank you. And I'm like, he the one gave them a shot. How come? How do they got to turn their back? They're like, it's disrespectful for them to drink in his face. I'm like, but he gave it to them. They're like, yes, but <laughs> I'm like, this is crazy. So like, I okay, so I lived in a dorm, and my gym was at the dorm. The cafeteria was at the dorm. So I was with my teammates like all day long. Every time I saw them, they bowed. I well, I could see them like 20 times a day. I'd see them at the bathroom, see them at the cafeteria, see them at practice. When they had three practices a day. I said, I'm not going to be fouling all day long. <laughs> so, yeah, the, mm-hmm. just some of the differences between our culture and their culture. Um, very different. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That's part one of Coach Sylvia Crawley's Hooper's Unhailed story. But don't fret. We have part two coming at you next week. And join us on Thursday at 930 for our Hooper's Unhailed remixed. The Q&A with all of the alums. It's on Clubhouse. Again, 930 Thursday, March 11th. Hope to see you there. In the meantime, in between time. Peace and love. K-Dot is out. Peace out. Three, two, one. Fire. It's a Capital Flavor production. Yeah.